Matthew chapter 1. Scott just read this a little bit. There was this small little portion in there. It was so small that you could have probably just read over it without giving it a second glance. But it says this in verse 25. It says, And then she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And then that was it. She gave birth to a son. It was just like, like in a moment, the Savior of the world came down onto earth, and that's all he got. It was Mary gave birth to a son, and they named him Jesus. And we don't even know how long she labored for, if it was three hours or 30 hours, if he had a strong cry, how, how long he was. We don't know any of that. But, but what we do know is that in that moment when he was born, all the prophecies had come true. All the prophecies telling that one day we were no longer going to have to be separated from God anymore and that our Savior was going to be birthed through a virgin And all of that was fulfilled in that one moment. God became more than just someone who ruled from heaven or someone who who dwelt in the holiest of holies, who had to be behind a veil. God was more than just a cloud and a pillar of fire. Finally, God took on flesh. John says this, that the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. That he was no longer far away, but he was right here personally. When he took on flesh, he took on flesh and bone, a physical body. Putting on flesh wasn't just referring to that, though. Sometimes I think that when we think about the word of God, Jesus himself putting on flesh, sometimes we can think that he was an empty shell and he wasn't. When God said that he was going to put on flesh, when that he became human, he became human in its entirety. That That means flesh and bone. That means mind, will, and emotion. Jesus wasn't just an empty shell here on earth, but he was real. You could touch him. You can embrace him. You could talk to him. And sometimes I think about the story of the Christmas nativity, and and I think sometimes it's really easy to forget that these were real people. Sometimes I think that that somehow, because we've heard the Christmas story over and over again, that we think that the angel came down, told Mary she was going to have a baby, and then, bam, she has a baby. But she carried that baby. For nine months, she carried that baby. For months in the beginning, she didn't even know if it was going to be really true until she felt the baby kick for the first time. She labored in pain. For however long it took, this was a real mom with a real child. This was a real mom who, after his birth, 
would pick him up when he fell, would play with his fingers and toes, would look lovingly onto his face. As Scott and I prepare for our second baby, I can't help but think about whether or not Mary knew. Did she know? Did she know when she looked into his eyes what he was going to have to endure? Did she know when she cradled him in his arms the pain that she was going to go through? And this is what is so amazing to me because knowing all of that, she pondered so much in her heart and knowing all of that, you have to ask yourself, was it worth it? As a mom, is it worth it? And the answer is a resounding yes because that is the great lengths Jesus went to to love us. That he would become flesh just to be with us. It was worth it to him. And it was worth it to her. Even as a mom watching her son die on the cross. Very real people. This is a very real story. See, Jesus came because he loved us and he came for us and he came for you. And there is no there is no mountain and there is no path that is harder. But he did it because you were worth it. And what's amazing is that as you read the story and it becomes so real, you realize that the Christmas season the story is all about Jesus coming down on earth. And the reason we celebrate isn't just because the king of kings became a vulnerable babe, but also because he did it for you personally. And that doesn't exclude anyone. He came for all of us. And as we continue to read in Matthew, we dig a little bit deeper about that. In Matthew 2. I haven't even started talking yet for crying out loud, babe. Yeah, boy. yeah there you go. Um, in Matthew 2, um, we read this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people Israel." Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. 
After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So the story of the Magi remains one that is still uh, surrounded by a fair amount of of mystery and, and speculation. We do know, according to Matthew's gospel, though, that they came from the east. But when you literally translate that from the Greek into the English, what that really means is they came from where the sun rises. And so it's still, again, it's highly speculated as to where they actually came from. Some scholars wonder if it's possible that they came from as far east as what would today be the Tibetan region of China. But most scholars seem to think that the most likely um, place of the Magi's origin was probably around um, what is modern-day Iran or Iraq, which would have been part of the Persian Empire at that point. And so while we don't exactly know where they came from, we do know that they were most likely not really kings, like the Christmas song, We Three Kings, states, but they were probably uh, more ancient mystics. David Mathis, who is a, a pastor and author up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, writes this about them. These magi are not respected kings, but actually pagan specialists in the supernatural experts in astrology, magic, and divination, blatant violators of Old Testament law, but they are still coming to worship Jesus. So last week, if you were here, one of the things that Geneve spent um, time just really, really um, hammering home on was how important it was and the significance of the angels appearing to the shepherds who were among the lowliest people of their day, though they were still children of Abraham. But you see, now we see there's something that's unique about this, this Jesus, this Emmanuel, this, this God with us baby, that yet in some strange divine way, this, this child who is mysteriously himself both fully human and fully omnipotent creator of the universe is somehow going to draw unto himself peoples from all nations, of all languages, people who were raised in different faith systems, different socioeconomic standings, all around the world will be drawn unto him. Another thing to point out is that the actual number of the Magi who participated in this Christmas account is not actually known either. Um, Historically, it's been depicted in art and in song and in narrative that there were three wise men, but that's probably just based on the fact that there are three documented gifts that they gave the Christ child. And so, again, we really don't have any idea how many magi were actually involved in this Christmas story, but also the the likelihood that they would have um, visited Jesus, like we see depicted in the nativity scene, where they found him in the stable like the shepherds did, that's also quite unlikely. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. And so there's there's a few things that have just kind of um, uh, become part of, the traditional Christmas story, like three wise men and them being part of the nativity scene that might need a little bit more of a a, a deeper understanding. But what we do know was that the gifts that were brought to the Christ child 
were, were, these were not chintzy gifts. I mean, all of us know the value of, of gold. Um, most of us, if we are familiar with the Christmas story, uh, the only times we really hear of frankincense or myrrh is when the Christmas story comes up. Unless, I guess, you're into, like, essential oils. I, I think there's one of those that's... <laughs> I, I, I think frankincense or something like that is one of those oils that you can get. Um, and I've heard that it works fantastic. But anyhow, um, these particular gifts, though, at that particular point in time were considered um, extremely uh, valuable gifts. And they were often given to people who were born into a royal bloodline. And so, um, again, the, the three items of gold, myrrh, frankincense, the, the, there was also a symbolic meaning uh, as they were provided to people in those uh, royal families. Um, just on a little side note, other scholars speculate that the gifts also um, are clues to where the Magi come from. Um, but historically, what many uh, decide to focus on in regards to th- these three gifts is the allegorical significance that they have in light of who Jesus Christ was and is. So again, <clears throat> we start with gold. And so it has been spoken of that the gold actually is something that represents the kingship of Jesus Christ. And it's not a surprise to see that something like gold would be on this list. Um, as of right now, gold is uh, it's still a, a precious metal that, that is right now tr- uh, worth about $1,250 per ounce and about $40,000 for a kilogram. And so it's still a precious metal that has... Um, immense worth. Many of us have, um, if we're married uh, or we just wear jewelry, we may have some uh, gold medal um, on, our, on our person. Um, and so we know that there's value in gold. Um, and, and it's not a coincidence that we grow up watching movies and, and reading stories about how kings would, would count gold as, as a sign of wealth. And so presenting a king with gold would have been an appropriate gesture on behalf of the gift giver, recognizing that person's claim to royalty and wealth. As Christians, we do believe that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's a title that's given to him in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. He's not an earthly king the way that we tend to think of the way monarchs today rule but he is a king who will someday return and establish here on earth a kingdom without war, without poverty, without racism, without corruption. It's going to be a place of perfection because when he returns, sin and death will no longer be. They will cease to exist. And so this is a very, a very brief explanation on what we mean when we say that he is king. We believe him to be King of kings, Lord of lords, supreme ruler of the universe, and we anxiously await his return. The second gift, frankincense, represents um, his priestly role. And I want to take us to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, because the author tells us that Jesus is actually our great high priest. And it reads like this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So there's a lot that we could talk about in regards to the role of Israel's high priest. But the primary role that they had was to serve as an intermediary between God himself and God's people, which was the nation of Israel. And it was the, uh, the high priest was the highest-ranking spiritual leader in all of Israel. And one of the roles that they had was every year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, to sacrifice animals um, on behalf of the nation of Israel in order to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. And he was the only person that was allowed into a place known as the Holy of Holies, which was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant was something that was really, really significant to the Jewish people because it actually represented the very presence of God himself. And so in this small room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, there was incense that was burning. And Exodus 30, verse 43, tells us that frankincense was actually one of the main components in um, creating this incense that was burning. And so the beautiful thing about this, though, is that uh, in regards to who Jesus is, being our, our great high priest, we no longer need that high priest that the Jewish people had because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our, mediator, uh, is our intermediary. And that cross and that empty tomb means everything to the Christian because it means that Christ's death and resurrection is what frees us from the power of sin and death. It reassures us that death is destroyed. Jesus Christ is now our high priest and our intermediary. And now it's not only one highly ranked spiritual leader that has access to God the Father. It's for all of us who have placed our trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. So the gold shows us his royal kingship. The frankincense, his role as our high priest. And then there's myrrh. Myrrh is used as a key ingredient in the mixture of spices um, used to prepare bodies for burial, or at least it was back in the ancient Near East. And so in ancient Israel, Jewish people would often wash the body of someone who had just recently passed away, and then that body would be anointed with various aloes and perfumes and, and oils before it was wrapped, uh, before that deceased person was wrapped in a cloth shroud and then placed in a tomb. Now, nard was uh, one of those perfumes that was most commonly used, um, but again, various aloes and oils were used, and myrrh was one of those that was also used in the preparation of burial. Now, it's presumable that if you were somebody of wealth, that you would actually be able to afford myrrh as you were being buried. And so we don't know for sure that myrrh was used in the burial of Jesus, but what we do know is that these three gifts were this amazing foreshadowing of who Jesus is and what he would do while living among us in human flesh. And so this, this is what the death of Jesus did. His death on that cross and his resurrection from the dead is what bought us our freedom. The Bible tells us that we have all been slaves to sin, but Jesus came conquered death, and in so doing, he broke the stronghold that sin has on our lives, and he bought our freedom with his life. I want to go back 
to the significance, though, of the Magi's role in the Christmas story. The Magi represented the fact that news of salvation through the life of this Christ child would spread to all nations. Again, we know that they were not people who were familiar with um, Jewish law. They were, they were considered pagan people, and yet, for some reason, they decided to follow the star to come see the Christ child. And so the significance of how now the gospel message and salvation is coming to everybody is so significant. It doesn't matter where you were born, what your gender is, how much money you have in the bank, what your past is like. You are never too far gone that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot wash clean our sin. Many say that the Christian faith is one that is uh, extremely exclusive, and it is, because the Bible repeatedly says Jesus is the only mediator, or the only intermediator, the only mediator, there we go, that we as humans have with the creator of the universe. He's the only way that we will be able to someday stand before a holy God. But this is also the most inclusive faith in the world, because the salvation that is offered has absolutely nothing to do with us or any work that we could do. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe to pay a price that we could never pay. Let me say that again. It's something that probably a number of us have have heard before. The person who made this quote is unknown. But again, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe to pay a price we could never pay. Every single person who has ever lived was born with a nature to sin. And our good works don't compare to what a holy God offers. They don't come close to his nature, to his character. It's inclusive, the Christian faith, because all who have trusted in Jesus Christ have access to the Father. It's inclusive because we read numerous times throughout the New Testament that people of all nations have heard the name of Jesus, and they've put their trust in him. It's inclusive because the name of Jesus is worshipped by people in nearly every corner of the globe. It aims to exclude nobody. All are welcome. Geneva and I literally know people who are, are making it their life's work to translate a Bible for a, for a people group who only have an oral language. That means they're actually developing a lexicon. They're developing, after learning a language that just a very, very small percentage of people on the planet know and understand, they're developing a language, creating a lexicon, teaching people how to read and write so that they can get God's word. You can go just about anywhere in the world and find Christians. Obviously, there are some nations that have a much smaller percentage of people who profess faith in in Jesus Christ than, than others. But it is the most globally influential faith, and the Bible is the most widely published book in the history of the world, despite attempts from world leaders over the course of centuries past 
to destroy any record of it. As I close this morning, I want to go back to another statement that was made by David Mathis. He writes, We really should beware. We really should beware of having a narrower vision of who can come to Jesus than God does. We can be so prone to write off people like this, but God doesn't. He draws, He woos, He's seeking worshipers from among the priestly caste of pagan religions. This is the God that we serve. And he's one who beckons us close. So this Christmas, take a moment to reflect on the fact that Jesus came to save us and that he is God's megaphone to a hurting world. That we are being wooed into a relationship with him.